So let's dive back into our story. Melchior has moved to Nanking. This transfer to Nanking, as he mentioned, was a result of Sun Yat-sen, who had returned to Guangzhou to assume leadership in March 1923 and reorganized a party under Leninist democratic centralist lines, allying himself with the Communist Party of China, known as the First United Front. When Sun died in March 1925 from illness, Chiang Kai-shek emerged as his natural successor. Chiang and the National Revolutionary Army began to reunify China in the summer of 1926, beginning with the defeats of warlords Wu Paifu and Sun Quanfang, who were both part of the Zili clique. In 1927, Chiang purged the communists, which ended the First United Front. He then consolidated power in Nanking, but needed Beijing in order to gain legitimacy for his government internationally. Chiang's leadership was called the Nanjing Decade and was shaped by compromise or brutal defeats of warlords in the north. Chiang's dictatorial regime hardly had absolute power, as warlords and rivals constantly challenged his rule. In 1912, the city was named Nanking and made the provisional capital of the new Republic of China. In 1927, however, Nanking was taken by communists, only for the city to be then retaken by nationalists under Chiang Kai-shek in 1928. Following its retaking, it was named the nation's capital, which meant, following the centralization of the warlords, all arms dealing with the government would occur through Nanking. Melchior and Karlowitz and company could no longer deal with individual warlords in the areas where the nationalist government had taken over, but had to graduate instead towards dealings with the national government. Nanking remained the capital of the Republic of China until 1949, when Beijing was named the first new capital of the People's Republic of China. In all of this tumultuous chaos, Melchior continued. change in perspectives on militarism showed an exhaustion with the warlords phase. At the beginning, the Germans had mocked Chinese conflicts even while financially supporting them. The Grand Duchess of Gerolstein was an opera which experienced much success in London by portraying the forces of a joke German principality, led by a joke German general named Baum, who was as incapable as he was fearless, and undertook a series of escapades across China. Such images contributed to the stereotypical Western depictions of the wars, which were belittling and blatantly false. As seen by the West, Chinese wars were opera jokes, which were only useful for mercenary purposes and were reliant on ritual rather than real, authentic battle, preferring silver bullets, or bribes, to actual combat. One description said, One wonders whether or not, somehow or another, one had fallen into the middle of a new Gilbert and Sullivan opera, which, presently, the painted general will elope with the painted Mimi, and the soldiers will all march in with parasols over their heads, singing the chorus. However, these images died with World War I, when conflicts in China began to take a more serious tone. Warlords became seen as a sinister category on both the German and Chinese fronts. According to one source, bloody internecine fighting in 1924, however, began to challenge the Western assumption that Chinese warfare was all an elaborate joke. It began with a struggle between Jiangsu and Zhu Ziyang for control of Shanghai, which had expanded into a showdown in Beijing and the North as well, the Second Zili Fangtian War. All the ruling stock in North China was pressed into service to carry men and weapons to the front. 
Mines and barbed wires entrenched their positions. Armored trains and military aircraft were employed, and artillery fire was punishing. Both sides used machine gun corps to kill their own troops if they were treated without order. Casualties were extremely heavy. Economic, social, and political life was thrown into a deep confusion. And here is where, ironically, I see my own face in my great-grandfather's story. In the article, The Warlord, 20th Century Chinese Understandings of Violence, Militarism, and Imperialism, I stumbled upon a political cartoon titled The Lorelei. And with this, the wild, sweet Lorelei singing, she has done. With an image of the Lorelei, the German mythological figure at least, waving the banner of militarism above a man decked out in full German war apparel, raising his sword in the waves below her. This cartoon was a symbol of how Germans were lulled in by a lust of war, one which my grandfather was so deeply caught in. It's important to note here that I'm named after the Lorelei, who is the German version of a siren. In German folklore, I would sit on the rocks and sing, luring sailors to their deaths. But in this political cartoon, I was the militarism, the nationalistic dream, the violence and the bloodlust, which had entered the Chinese theater and allowed for the ruthless exploitation of Chinese international conflict, was labeled by me and my all-too-German name. obviously gotten a negative connotation in China. In 1927, as Chiang Kai-shek turned against his former allies, the Guomindang left and the communists, he too was labeled a warlord, showing how that name had now been crafted as an insult for a conniving, backstabbing, and turning against one's subjects or personal gains type of politician. Another political cartoon from the same article in 1927 portrayed a toothless, blindfolded Chung feeling his way towards his grave, where a bird was perched whistling, Welcome. The Chinese people, as well as the international community, were beginning to show reluctance towards the German exploitation of military conflict and the continuous brutality of war. It makes sense. As the tale of two warlords stated, successful generals learned not only to deploy an infantry brigade or conduct aerial operations, but also how to employ treachery. Offers of cash, power, or revenge reached high levels in the 1920s, leading Wu Paifu to complain that betraying one's leader has become as natural as eating breakfast. Guns and soldiers to wield them were the new currency of power in the early Republican of China, Warlords consumed government revenues for both and retarded economic growth in doing so. They produced over a thousand conflicts, both big and small, reducing China's international standing and encouraging foreign imperialists to step in. This contributed to an era of hypermilitarism that supported the Chinese adage that good iron is not made into nails and good men are not made into soldiers. Because of this phenomenon, communism, and thus the rejection of monetary militarism, heightened in popularity. This communism, however, was never an authentic communism. Although the Chinese adopted the images, organizations, and rhetoric from Europe and the Soviet Union during the 1920s, they never really adopted the essence of the Marxist understanding of militarism, which saw it as the production of capitalism and imperialism, and thus rejected any suggestion that a militarist held genuine autonomous power. 
No matter how carefully they couched their arguments in Marxist terms, the Chinese continued to understand that power came from the barrel of a gun, and they acted accordingly. No matter how hard they tried to be Marxist economic determinists, the Chinese left ended up as idealists of violence. After Chiang Kai-shek's partially successful unification of China, the concept of warlords was left behind, but it was still used for political cartoons and within political debates, as an insult to attack extreme militarism and extreme violence. With this in mind, let's return to Melchior's work in Nanking. Melchior had switched from selling guns to the various warlords, who had now been displaced by the central government, to selling guns directly to the head government in Nanking. He described how our connections were with the war ministry. As representatives of the German Mauser works, we sold them rifles and pistols. Because they ordered thousands more again and again, these ended up being nice contracts and we didn't do too badly. At first, the Nanking authorities had rather unsophisticated business procedures, and so, when working with the war ministry, we always negotiated with the same man, the vice minister of war, Chen Yi. He had been trained in Japan and had a Chinese housewife. He had a dark, silent way about him. Many years later, when Chiang Kai-shek liberated Formosa from Japan in 1945, a revolt against these liberators broke out, which led to a horrific bloodbath. Responsible for the gruesome suppression was Chen Yi. With him, our business negotiations went smoothly, and we had a relatively easy time of it. As time went on, though, we no longer worked with just one man, but with an entire governmental purchasing commission. Now, I'd like to pause here and point out the fact that Melchior openly admitted to dealing guns to someone who was responsible for, as he claimed, was a horrific bloodbath, and that all of these claims, moreover, were corroborated by historical references outside of him. Perhaps one could view his terrifyingly candid honesty as either shameless or, I guess, admirable. He leads on to say that my assignment was not only to successfully continue to the established and ongoing business deals, but above all, to find new ones with companies we had not yet worked with. When it came to weapons, we had another, much more important representative. Because after the Versailles Treaty, Krupp was barred from producing weapons, we managed to become the sole representatives in China for the Swedish company, Bofors, one of Europe's largest, most important weapons manufacturers. In the next years, we did good business with Bofors. Every time assignments came, they were huge, requesting not only weaponry but munitions, and all the other battle gear, such as flashlights, hydrophones, and much more. Bofors went as sale representatives and sent us them, plus a technical director, to support us. These big business deals, which added up to 100,000 DM, were undertaken by the marketing division of the Chinese Finance Ministry, and we negotiated with the finance minister himself, Dr. T.V. Song, or H.H. Kung. Our firm ended up as the sales representative. We incurred no financial risks and received a fixed commission on each incoming order. At the conclusion of the contract, the Chinese added a fee of 10 to 15 percent for the balance to be paid over three years. We received promissory notes from the finance ministry and guarantees from the Central Bank of China. Every six months, a note came due, and we were relieved each time these payments came through because guarantees from the Central Bank didn't mean much, dependent as they were on government authorities. Germany continued to have a substantial impact on Chinese political affairs. Melchior recalled how, at the time, Nanking had more than 200 German military advisors. This influx began as soon as Chiang Kai-shek took power in 1928. 
Chung needed advisors to organize and train his rather wild military. He reached out to Germany, and among the first group to arrive was Colonel A.D. Bauer, with a few former active-duty German officials. These were mostly young, unmarried men who skipped out of the German imperial state for various reasons. They had two-year private contracts with the Chinese government, taking orders from their German commander, Colonel Bauer, who had direct access to Chiang Kai-shek. This first group was known to strike out on outlandish adventurers, quite a crazy bunch, who came for a lark and had little interest in their earnings. I did a little independent research on Colonel Bauer, who had been in Germany making contracts with German industries until the Treaty of Versailles had restricted arms production. Interestingly enough, Bauer, although Melchior did not know of this at the time, or at least did not include it in his account, had also participated in the Cap Putsch earlier. This made him a persona non grata in the German government, and that was why he was relegated to a Chinese trade department for a secret German military mission in Nanking. He didn't just skip out, as Melchior pointed out. Bauer had apparently advocated for the formation of a small corps army supported by local military forces, but Chung didn't end up using his ideas. Just as Melchior had mentioned, he invited German officers, exactly 20 according to one account, to work for China as officers in military training and intelligence. Unfortunately, however, he met his fate, just as Melchior described later in his tales. When I arrived in Nanking three years later, most of them had been shipped back home. Colonel Bauer had died of smallpox. Turns out he died on May 6, 1929, although it is now speculated that this was the result of having been personally infected by one of his Chinese enemies, as he was the only known person infected with a contagious disease in the region where he contracted it. This, of course, Melchior did not know. At the end of his year in Nanking, Melchior was allowed to take a vacation to Europe. He, of course, returned to his family in Germany, where he experienced some significant changes. Our street, Erikastras, had not changed at all, and yet to me it now seemed small, bleak. The same cobblestones, the same trees, street landards, tiny front gardens, and the same garden fence over which I, as a teenager, exchanged my first kiss. I felt some nostalgia while, at the same time, feeling far removed from it all. Even friends of my youth were still living in Hamburg. We met and had a few good laughs, exchanging memories of our teen years together. I described my time in China and heard them all tell about their lives and future plans. These were pleasant exchanges, but all the while, even amongst them, I felt somewhat distant. While he did some sightseeing, exploring large portions of Europe, I will dedicate my time now to describing his experiences in Germany, which were fairly descriptive and indicative of the time he was living in. He recalled how... 1932 was a dreary year for Germany, both economically and politically. Millions of its citizens were unemployed and went to bed hungry. It's not statistics nor numbers which jog the memory, but rather small personal experiences, such as when I soldered about the nighttime streets of St. Pauli with my two old friends, John Kamlad and Max Mueller. We, three, were doing well, had plenty of money, and spent it rather freely and generously that night. In the early morning hours, we hankered for some better food, like chicken soup, and luck had it we found the right breakfast nook on the Reberbahn. Lined up in the shadows of the entrance to the restaurant were hungry figures, sniffing the air every time the door opened just to get a waft of hot soup into their nostrils. On the spot, our good mood transformed into a terrible hangover. We felt ashamed and didn't feel much better even after we invited them all into the restaurant for a meal. Naturally, this time of misery was a perfect feeding ground for extreme political parties, 
with communists on one side and the quickly rising nationalist socialists on the other. Both parties had formed their own uniformed troops, who conducted propaganda marches down city streets. Brawls broke out, gunshots sounded, and no one really knew what exactly all the fighting was about because party spokesmen offered nothing except simple-minded slogans and epithets. Once, I engaged in a conversation with one of these quote-unquote fighters. He informed me that the party often provided him with inexpensive meals, and he didn't need to pay a penny for the high military boots he was wearing. The opposition party, he continued, required payment for boots. These simple perks seemed sufficient motivation for German youths of that time to risk getting shot and killed. Meanwhile, Hitler and his propaganda chief, Goebbels, loudly beat the drum, and enthusiasm for the National Socialists also grabbed hold of the educated elites. Friends of mine saw Hitler as a savior who would deliver Germany from its misery. So Melchior even personally went to hear Hitler deliver a speech. He recounts how the elections were held in late summer and Hitler went from place to place. I was determined to get a good look at and listen to this alleged Superman, but I was deeply disappointed hearing nothing but cliches delivered in a most unpleasant voice. The crowd around me, however, reacted very differently. Whipped up by strutting, stiff military marching, they cheered with enthusiasm even before he opened his mouth, and many women wept with emotion, thrilled to behold right in front of them their beloved leader. I didn't get it. Melchior's story of this incident then gets even more interesting. As I left the rally, an SS officer called out to me. He was an old mate, Bruno Streckenbach, whom I had not seen in a dozen years or so. For a time, his desk was next to mine at school, and I remember watching him draw, greatly admiring his artistic talent. He left school after the primary years, and while others had sweated it out to finishing school, he found a career as a salesman and then got married. Both his marriage and his career collapsed, and now, he told me, he was a party spokesman. I thought, well, that's also a kind of profession, and went away feeling sorry for him. Little did I suspect that not long thereafter, he would become the feared Gestapo leader of Hamburg, and most likely responsible for sending countless people to concentration camps. According to my research, in November 1939, Bruno Streckenbach was assigned to the SS units in Krakow. In Krakow, he was the leader of the mass arrests of the professors of Krakow University, and was head of the infamous Polish intelligenista during May 1940, which resulted in the deaths of 3,500 intellectuals. For his success, success of course being defined by the Nazis, he was promoted in January 1941, where he then served as head of the Einsatzgruppe. On October 21st, 1939, he demonstrated that he knew of the final solution and was a definitive part of it. He informed his fellow general, Hans Frank, of Himmler's intention to organize the depression of all Jews, coming from religions which were now part of the Reich, while the one million Poles of good origin would be then sent to the Reich to be depolonized. Streckenbach wanted full control over this operation, and he was angered when he was told that all questions pertaining to quote-unquote Jewish matters would have to be passed through the security police and require executive enforcement. Streckenbach was directly involved in the Nazi plan for the expulsion of more than 50 million non-Germanized Slavs through forced migration into Siberia. In their place, he settled 8 to 10 million Germans who received expanded living space. During his time, he oversaw the expulsion and relocation of 88,000 Poles and non-Aryans, and was charged with training them and indoctrinating them. 
He was also in charge of seizing and destroying all political and radical enemy groups, such as the Bolsheviks, Gypsies, Partisans, and, of course, the Jews. Most troublingly, he ordered that all enemies of the Third Reich were to be deported to concentration camps, and Jews were to be singled out for special treatment. This, of course, meant an extermination camp. Streckenbach never ended up being brought to justice at the Nuremberg trial. Returning to Melchior's story. Following his attendance of a Hitler rally, his vacation ended and he was returned to China. On the way, he once again got to stop in Russia, which posed an interesting comparison to his first experience in Russia in 1926. It was now six years later, in 1932. And he described that, We could travel through the short stretch through Poland, so I got a glimpse of Warsaw, even if it was just from the train window. In Moscow, the train cars got shunted from one rail to another, so we had a whole day's layover. This time, I was surprised to see many improvements since my last trip. Pedestrians were well-dressed. No beggars sat on the street. More cars traveled on the roads. Parks with flower beds were well-tended. In short, the whole city seemed more friendly and was not as dreary as it appeared to me six years ago. They also showed us newly constructed large apartment buildings, as well as the digs for a new underground metro system, which I later heard turned out to be quite luxurious. Of course, I've researched this area of Russian history and was surprised to learn that this description made very little historical sense. At the time, a massive famine was sweeping through the country and had already killed 5 million people, although the Russian Revolution was, at that point, admittedly steeped in its ongoing propaganda campaign, which might have led to the front of prosperity and modernization for its visitors that Melkor experienced. Back in China, he met my grandmother, who had been born in America but returned to Germany recently after her birth due to her mother's dissatisfaction with life in America. This detail will become important later in the story. But my great-grandmother, Mushka, unbeknownst to herself or Melchior, was an American citizen because of this random occurrence. More interesting was the relationship of her sister, who was married alongside Mushka in a joint wedding ceremony. Mushka's sister, Erika, got married to a Jewish man, at least, a Jewish man as defined by German race law. As Melchior described, your mother's sister, Erika, had met a young German lieutenant working as a German advisor after having been kicked out of his infantry in Germany because his grandmother was Jewish. He was a victim of Germany's idiotic race policy. Klaus von Schmeling-Derenschaffen was from Pomerania and descended from a side branch of old Prussian aristocracy. It was tradition in those days for a father to bequeath his land to his eldest son. The younger sons were appointed to the Prussian army and later to the German army as officers, as were their descendants who were the side branch of that aristocracy. In most cases, these aristocrats married within their class, but occasionally exceptions were made in cases of passionate love or financially necessary boosts, allowing marriages with bourgeoisie bloodlines. As I remember, Klaus von Esse's grandfather married a Jewish woman. She did not have money, but she brought into the family traits that your Uncle Klaus benefited from. He was nothing like the rigid, dark personalities often found among Prussian officers, but rather was a good mix of family tradition and a liberal outlook on life. He was also very musical and a master at playing the accordion. We were all very fond of him. Ultimately, the German army would permit Klaus von Ess to join the war effort. 
It wasn't a personal dream of his to join the German army. He had hoped to leave China and immigrate to Africa, but after the war broke out in China, he didn't have enough finances to launch a new life, and so he moved back to Germany. It must have been the German army's desperation for capable soldiers that prompted them to take him after his initial rejection, because he was a Jew, of course. Germany gave him credit for his work in China and offered him a position as captain of the army. He ended up dying at war within his first three weeks, fighting for a country that, had they won, would probably have killed him. He was the first German officer killed in the invasion of Poland and was proclaimed a German war hero. Mushka and Melchior lived a happy existence in Nanking, at least according to Melchior's reports, taking various vacations around China and even one to Japan. This was, of course, until the Chinese-Japanese war broke out. Now I think it's time for a Here's Waldo moment, and to give you some context. The Second Sino-Japanese War, that being the one which Melchior lived through, and the one adjacent, although definitely part of, the Second World War, made up 50% of the casualties in the Pacific War, incorporating the period from 1937 to 1941. As we already know, the 1930s China was divided between Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist regime, which was formally established in 1928, and the dictatorial regime of Mao Zedong's communists, the Kuomintang. The civil war between the communists and the nationalists had been going on since 1930, long before the Second Sino-Japanese War broke out. In 1931, Japan, hoping to exploit Chinese natural resources and recognizing an opportunity out of China's lack of national solidarity, invaded Manchuria and made it a facade independent state called Manchukuo. The Chinese emperor who ruled it, who we will speak of later, was essentially just a puppet of the Japanese. Following this, the Chinese suffered continuous territorial disputes with the Japanese, who were now using Manchuria as their base to launch a program of expansion. The whole north of the country was slowly being taken by Japanese control, and because of ongoing fighting between communists, warlords, and the national government of Chiang Kai-shek, they faced little resistance, except for a few popular uprisings by peasants, which were quickly suppressed. In 1937, this conflict came to a head in the Marco Polo Bridge Incident, which sparked the official beginning of the Second Sino-Japanese War. The Chinese nationalists and the communists agreed to a truce and to fight together against Japan, and the communists saw, used their positive relationship with Stalin to supply arms to China. He mostly did so because he saw Japan as an increasing threat. China was also receiving aid from Britain, France, and the U.S., who were all strongly anti-Japanese. Interestingly, at the time, China was in addition receiving aid from Nazi Germany, and Smelkura's ability to stay in China. This aid continued until Hitler decided to make an alliance with Japan in 1938, thereby relinquishing ties with the Chinese government. The Japanese quickly captured all key Chinese cities, including both Nanking and Shanghai, which, as we will see, drastically affected Melchior's work. Both sides used brutal scorched-earth tactics, which made massacres and human rights violations common practice. The war ended in an estimated 10 to 20 million Chinese civil civilians dead, and it was only through Western intervention, through economic sanctions, and eventually America's entrance into the war after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, that China would be relieved of Japanese forces. As one can imagine, this war was extremely influential to Melchior's experience in Japan. He recalls how, at first, we thought it wasn't a real war, and assumed that the shooting in the North would remain there, as was often the case in earlier years. Unfortunately, this time, it was completely different. The Japanese landed more and more troops in Nanking, while the Chinese sent in several divisions, and soon it turned into a full-scale war. In August, the first bombs fell on Nanking, delivered by Japanese planes using Formosa as their base. 
Allegedly, there were only 50 kilograms of bombs, and not many, and yet they were dropped indiscriminately. One exploded in a field just 100 meters from our house. Chinese fighter planes flew in to respond, and with our binoculars, we watched the battle in the skies above us. This sort of thing doesn't look very exciting from the ground up, but it certainly becomes so when one of the planes is hit with deadly fire and comes crashing down. We saw this and drove while alarms were sounding to the crash site. It was a Japanese airplane, smashed to pieces, piled up in a Chinese courtyard. The flyers, three Japanese in uniform, were dead and looked so very small, like children. A few civilian Chinese were standing around. No military nor police were to be seen. We took some photos of this gruesome scene. I would have loved to see those photos in retrospect. But slowly, conditions got worse and worse in Nanking. Melkor remembered that Nanking grew to be quite uncomfortable, and expatriates started sending their families to Shanghai. Because all rail and river traffic had halted, this escape was achieved by automobiles. The route to Shanghai for the south was still open, yet it was advised that we should drive in the dark for the last 50 miles into the city. Japanese planes had started to make direct machine gun fire at cars. The English ambassador was lightly wounded by one of these attacks. To express their neutrality, expatriates displayed their flags on the roof of their cars, but this did not seem to deter the Japanese. So Melkor ended up sending Mushka away to Shanghai for safety, but out of stubbornness and because she missed him, she ended up going back to Nanking. When the Japanese landed troops south of Shanghai, it became obvious to Melkor and his family that they would have to evacuate Nanking, and so he fled, along with the rest of the German community, to Hangtao. He described how... When the Japanese troops marching towards Nanking were but one day away, the whole German community boarded the ship. The German ambassador with his family, the entire embassy staff and their families, all German advisors and their families, and a few German businessmen. His work in arms dealing began to deteriorate there. The slow process of transporting records from Nanking to Hankou, the impossibility of communication with Shanghai, the inability to travel, and the overall stalemate in sales had made it relatively impossible to deal arms. Melchior eventually realized that he escaped Nanking just in time. One day after the departure of his ship, the infamous rape of Nanking began. Nanking's population had grown from 250,000 to more than 1 million people as a result of refugees fleeing Japanese forces and coming to the nation's capital. On that day, Japanese forces advanced on Nanking and launched a massive attack, while Chinese troops retreated to the other side of the Yangtze River. The two Japanese fleets which arrived instigated a flood of mass executions, rapes, and animalistic behavior. Japanese Prince Asaka delivered orders that all prisoners of war are to be executed. Method of execution, divide the prisoners into groups of a dozen, shoot to kill separately. However, this orderly execution didn't occur. But a ton of people died in even more gruesome ways. The Japanese didn't just kill soldiers, but killed innocent city dwellers, which is now considered a crime against humanity. Chinese captives were forced to bury other people alive, or would be buried halfway and attacked by dogs. Japanese soldiers tortured citizens with disembowelment, decapitation, dismemberment, and other forms of torture. Women were subjected to rape and forced to perform sexual acts. However, while Melchior might have witnessed this carnage, it's unlikely that he would have been harmed. Germany, after all, was at this time on the same side as Japan. He would have been spared, even if he had been there. Melchior eventually ended up in Hong Kong, where he had his first child, my grandmother's sister. 
At this point, he was due for a second vacation to Germany, and so with my great-aunt, he returned to his home country, at this point in the full thrust of Nazism. He recalled his journey to Germany and how, very soon, we noticed that the Nazis even put out their propaganda on overseas vessels. The party leader on board was the chief steward, a rather disgusting fellow, who took himself to be at least as important as the captain, behaving that way, and then, at the end of the voyage, holding his hand out for gratitudes. He arranged party meetings, also attended by the crew, and at all festive occasions opened his big mouth. All passengers were encouraged to join in on singing National Socialist battle songs, and so forth. It was awful, and we feared what politically awaited us in Germany. There they met Mushka's brother. I had known for quite some time that Mushka's brother was a Nazi. Family legend had it that Mushka cut the swastika armband out of a photo of him marching in a military brigade, and the picture was kept on our mantle for quite some time. This photo was long gone by the time I was born, as was most of the evidence of our family having been Nazis. According to Hans's account, we also met up with my mother's brother, Uncle Reinhard, in Munich. He graduated from high school in Shanghai, then had returned to Germany to do so-called work duty, following which he was to become a soldier. His work duty was to end one day in October 1939. Reinhard, not enthusiastic about becoming a soldier, longed for this day. He told us that at the end of his duty, he planned to enroll in a colonial school in Witzenhausen, where he would study agriculture to be a farmer in South Africa. We invited him out to dinner with us and delighted in his robust appetite. I never saw him again. He fell in the Caucasus in 1942. This was obviously not a good trip for Melchior. His mother died, and he was horrified to witness what Germany had become. During all this upheaval, the country was submerged in German National Socialism, something which I could not abide. The wild propaganda of Goebbels, the primitive anti-Semitism of Streicher, whose messages plastered every billboard and street column, all this was disgusting. Strongly repulsive it was to see all the party-affiliated little boys, full of zeal, immersing themselves in downright eerie darkness, refusing to choose anything better. You could not get far enough away from them. It wasn't easy, for they were everywhere, even among the classmates of my childhood. Nazis found their bedfellows with the Japanese, and under Japanese pressure, the German government ordered all German advisors in China to dissolve their contracts with the Chinese and return to Germany. Of course, this could be difficult to enforce. And yet what German officer does not obey a command, even if he thinks it's wrong? With only very few exceptions, all German advisors knuckled under and returned to Germany. Most of them were promised positions for the active duty in the army. Those who retired as lieutenant colonels beyond their dreams were promoted to general. These officers were surely very grateful to Hitler for generously regenerating and promoting their career in the army. Little did they suspect that they would become victim to a newly planned war and that they would ultimately sacrifice their lives for the 1,000-year reach. He reminisced on how things did not look good. The political situation and Germany's foreign policy was heating up. This was the time of the Sudetenland crisis. Melchior crossed the Alps on a beautiful day to mainland, then took the train to Genoa. There, in the North German Lloyd office, I met a few Chinese-German acquaintances, who also were there to return to the east of Asia, except their firms had just sent telegrams calling them back to Germany because of the new political crisis. They wished me a good journey, envious that I could leave, and I was relieved to get away. But as happy as I was to get out of Germany, I did feel like I was on the run, leaving my wife and child to an unknown destiny. Our vacation fell short in so many ways. 
too many events, too much hectic rushing around, and all this in a country with a population so seduced by clever political propaganda that it could no longer think straight, a country which had become foreign to me. It was a terrible time. One could feel sick mischief escalating while wishing it away. Here I will outline the current political situation which Melchior felt uneasy about, more specifically, the Potsdam Crisis. When the Austrian-Hungarian Empire collapsed at the beginning of World War I, its territory was divided up, and German-speaking people ended up part of the new country of Czechoslovakia. The German-speaking people in the western part of Czechoslovakia were referred to in Germany as Sudetenland. In 1938, the German leader in Sudetenland, named Konrad Heinlein, claimed that Sudeten Germans were being mistreated by the Czechs, leading to Hitler ordering plans to destroy Czechoslovakia by the 1st of October. On September 12, 1938, Hitler threatened to bring war to Germany unless the German-majority areas in the north, south, and west of Czechoslovakia were surrendered to him. In order to mitigate this conflict, Chamberlain, the British Prime Minister, flew out to see Hitler and agreed that Czechoslovakia should give all areas with 50% German Sudetans to Germany. However, this compromise wasn't enough for Hitler. Hitler changed his mind and demanded all of Sudetenland by the 1st of October. To be fair, this probably wasn't a change of mind. This was, as previously mentioned, his plan all along. In order to prevent all-out war, Britain, France, and Germany, and Italy met in Munich, and the Munich Agreement was signed, agreeing that Germany could occupy Sudetenland between the 1st and 10th of October. Chamberlain considered this a victory, in accordance with his policy of appeasement, and after coming back, claimed that the agreement meant peace with honor. Unfortunately enough for the Czechs, Czechoslovakia was not part of this agreement to give away its own territory. And as Czech leader Jan Marasak commented, we are not ready to accept peace at all costs. The prime minister of Czechoslovakia, who was also a force to accept the Munich agreement, despite not having per been permitted attendance at the meeting, remarked, we have been abandoned. This meant, however, that when Melchior was leaving Germany, they were at the brink of war. The policy of appeasement could only take Europe so far, and slowly Hitler was demanding more and more of Europe in exchange for maintaining European peace. Returning to Melchior's story, at this point as we remember, Hans was residing in Hong Kong with his wife and his first child, which was a British protectorate at the time. Not long after he got back, World War II broke out. He recalled how Hitler was determined to go to war and fabricated a new crisis which quickly gained momentum. Many Germans fled to Hong Kong, including Heinz and Olli Arns. We stayed back. Looking back, I often asked myself why I risked it, particularly since I saw, and for a long time felt, that in the long run, war was inevitable. Probably I was a bit stubborn and optimistic enough to believe that crises, like all the previous ones, would blow over. This time, though, the West held fast, and Hitler got his war. to stay, however, put Melchior in some deep trouble. I imagine he did not wish to return to the Germany that was so vastly different from the one that he had known, and at the time, residing in Germany while not being a supporter of Hitler would have meant trouble if he ever dared to express his political opinions. He stayed in Hong Kong, and this segment of the story is perhaps the most interesting. I will read it to you here in full. 
On the evening of September 3rd, 1939, our telephone no longer functioned, probably disconnected by the British, and so I drove to a German acquaintance to learn of any news from him. An empty bus was parked in front of his house, and two British policemen were hauling him away. Of course, I would also be on their list for internment. A very nice, young policeman, apparently uncomfortable about these arrests, drove with me in my car back to our home. I was allowed two small suitcases, bid mother farewell, and kissed you, dear Krinka, goodbye, while you were sleeping in your bed. On the road, it occurred to me that I had not left mother enough cash, and the police agreed to return back to the house to provide me with it. Another farewell, finally, we were off. I was in a daze. In the still of night, we drove along the coastline, but at sea, fishing boats were lit by torches, and the moon, barely visible, shone from behind the dark peak. It felt so quiet and peaceful that the idea of war seemed totally unreal. I didn't say a word, rather buried myself in thought. Then the policeman started talking, trying to console me. He was so sweet and naive that I had to smile. The ice was broken, my optimism returned, and I felt that somehow it would turn out all right. He drove to a police station where other Germans had been rounded up. The policeman promised to return my car to my home the next day. Taking precautions, I had already transferred the paperwork of my car to a Chinese friend, who a couple months later shipped the car to Shanghai, where I could take possession of it again. At the time, we owned two cars. We later sold the other car during the war to an English officer. It was all a bit humorous, really. On this first night, though, I was not in a comical mood. Towards midnight, we were all delivered via the harbor in Kowloon to the prepared internment camp at LaSalle College. Personal effects were taken from us. We had to give up our passports, cash, razor blades, scissors, and so forth, for which we received receipts. Then they corralled us all into one huge room, set up as a dormitory. I had expected to be with no more than about 30 Germans, but there were over a hundred, more than half of the German Jews who had fled Germany. Exhausted, we fell into bed, although most of us were too wound up to actually sleep. Then, in the quiet of night, one voice rang out. It took him six years to separate us from each other, and now, in just a couple hours, we're all sleeping together again. Even those locked up with Nazis could not hold back their laughter. And so, your father, for the first time in his life, was incarcerated. It's a strange feeling behind barbed wire, and somehow one feels unworthy or second-rate or dishonored. The right words escape me. When one looks through barbed wire where complete strangers bearing weapons deny you your freedom. Living there was not bad. We had plenty of room, and even tennis courts were available and eagerly used. At first, however, there were difficulties with provisions and maintenance issues. The Hong Kong bureaucrats had not yet received any guidelines from London and treated us to rules established in 1914 to deal with civilian prisoners of war. In the meantime, too, Hong Kong prices soared higher and higher. Still, it wasn't too bad. Besides, soon enough, we were able to bribe our guarding soldiers and smuggle in and bring us newspapers, beer from the canteen, and so forth. At the end of the first week, we were allowed visits with our loved ones. Mother and you, Krenka, then one and a half years old, arrived. Mother brought a supply of unopened bottles, whiskey, gin, vermouth, and so forth, which unfortunately we could not keep and gifted to our soldier guards. Mother also brought me clothes, hangers, and a few flower pots with which I should decorate my room. She was doing well on the outside. She felt no burdens, yet felt quite alone in the huge house. 
Because we had no idea what the future entailed, we also had to be careful with our expenditures. Previously, I had taken precautions, transferring our savings accounts out of Hong Kong to Shanghai, so we had very little cash left in Hong Kong. Mother decided it best to move to a smaller house on the peak, sharing it with the wife of another interned German. The next week, she packed up everything for the move, which the British permitted, and which was not nailed down. On the day of the move, I was allowed a furlough. A strange feeling it was. An armed soldier was assigned to accompany me. We rode the bus to our beautiful home. I was to see it for the last time. Because everything had already been packed up, there was nothing for me to do. The soldier withdrew to another room and left me alone with mother. We put our heads together on what we should do, and suddenly a car drove onto our property. A British woman stepped out and introduced herself as a member of the community devoted to helping German families in need. We saw this as a kind gesture, indeed, but we told her that we didn't need any help. And, in fact, Mother went one step further for her by picking a large bouquet of orchards growing in our garden. But this British woman was moved and wanted to express kindness towards us and announced, We do not fight the German people, you know. It is the Hitlerism that we have to be strict about. These last words, we have to be strict about, struck me as so typical of an English school marm that I had to difficulties suppressing my anger. Mother and Karen lived on the peak, and I had to return to the camp. In the third week of the internment, a rumor spread that some of us would be released. It was said that anyone who had no ties whatsoever to the Nazi party could go free. In particular, this affected the many German Jews, who should not have been arrested in the first place and were stupidly incarcerated. But I and all the others who were not party members had hope. The English authorities knew exactly who among us were party members. After all, they were able to confiscate all of the party records, complete and intact, at the start of the war. Responsible party bigwig did not dare destroy them. When his comrades questioned him about this in the camp, he insisted that, after all, he had not received any orders to destroy them. This idiocy turned out to be my good luck. One day, a British secret policeman came to the civilian camp. Every German was taken to him, one by one. My record was spotless, even having eschewed membership in the German club. This man knew it all. Quite amazing how well informed he was on the details of each and every person before him. I easily could answer all questions to his satisfaction, except one which totally baffled me. The man wanted to know my plans and where I would be going after my release. I knew that I could no longer stay in Hong Kong, an English colony and possession, in addition to the fact that I no longer had any gainful employment opportunities there. Leaving Hong Kong, the question remained whether I would use my freedom to travel through Siberia, return to Germany, and join the war effort against England. I answered that the only thing left for me was to travel to Shanghai with my family, where I would be supported by my firm so that we could live there for the duration of the war. He seemed content with my reply. A couple days later, I received the word that I would go free. All Jews, as well as other Germans with no party affiliation, were let go. Left behind were several dozen Nazis who ended up paying a dear price for their sins. Before Japan conquered Hong Kong, they and their families were transported to a camp in Ceylon. And later, when this location was endangered, they were moved again to Dehradun in Hindustan, where they sat behind barbed wire until the winter of 1945, when finally they were deported to the rubble of Germany. I, myself, only endured about one month in the internment camp. I was arranged by police for mother to book passage for three to Shanghai. A day before departure, I was taken to a police station on the island. They also ordered mother to go to the station. 
There they returned my passport, money, and all that had been confiscated, and without further restraints set me free. Mother and I went to the Hong Kong hotel where Mother had a meeting arranged with an Englishman who wanted to purchase our car. The sale satisfactory to all, we enemies drank a whiskey to seal the deal, toasted one another, and lamented the insanity of the war. At the time of Melchior's arrest, the British had an interesting system of classification with which they dealt with all potentially dangerous German citizens. According to their policy, all Germans and Austrians over the age of 16 who were residing in British territory were called before special tribunals and divided into three groups. Group A was compromised of high-security risks, who were immediately interned. This group was made up of the verified Nazis, such as the one Melchior was housed with while they were sorting through everyone's files. Group B was made up of doubtful cases, who were released, but supervised and subject to restrictions. Since Melchior had, as he proclaimed, a clean record, with absolutely no instance of working for or supporting the Nazi party, and had never spoke of being supervised or surveilled, I'm gonna guess that he was lucky enough to land in Group C. Group C, most likely the group which Melchior fell into, was no security risk, and this group was left at liberty to go on with their lives and do as they pleased. It's pretty impressive that Melchior made it to this group, as the vast majority of the people in Group C were Jewish. Although I couldn't find numbers on record for Hong Kong, out of the 64,000 who fell under the classification of no security risk in Great Britain, 55,000 of these were refugees, the majority of whom were Jewish. It is likely, however, that Melchior may have been seen as refugee. Had he voiced his opinions about Hitler and the Nazi regime that he voiced to us, it is most likely that they would have seen him as a refugee from Germany, although not, of course, to the extent that a Jewish man would have been a refugee. I also found evidence of LaSalle College, the location at which he was interned, although it seemed most of the primary sources that were available to me were exclusively in German. However, the Wikipedia page of the college did note that in 1939, LaSalle College was affected when World War II commenced in Europe. On September 3rd, 1939, Britain declared war on Germany, and the British War Department in Hong Kong designated LaSalle College campus as an internment camp for German nationals arrested on Hong Kong on the same day. The, those interned included the German engineer Gerhard Neumann. The internment camp was run for approximately eight months, during which time the brothers organized classes in morning and afternoon sessions in the college annex across the road, the building which was to become LaSalle Primary School in 1957. So Melchior was lucky that he made it out of British territory in time, as upon escalation of the war in 1940, the policies around internment became more strict. In the spring of 1940, the failure of the Norwegian military campaign and escalations of fear against enemy aliens and spies led to an even greater roundup of Germans and Austrians. This time, since Britain had also gone to war with Italy, Italians were added to the mix. Even citizens of those countries who had lived in British territory for decades were sent to camp. According to one article, facilities were basic, but it was boredom that was the greatest enemy. Internees organized educational and artistic projects, including lectures, concerts, and camp newspapers. At first, married women were not allowed into the camps to see their husbands. But by August 1940, visits were permitted, and a family camp was established in late 1941. This is pretty similar to the conditions Melchior described, although the camps would probably have been much more packed by that time. And so, once again, Hans and his family were on the run. They took a small bundle of their valuables and necessities and boarded a boat for Shanghai, where once again they would live. Upon arrival, they learned that Schmeling, if you remember, the Jewish man who had married Hans's wife, Mushka's sister, 
had passed. Stranded in Shanghai with no desire to run to Germany, this was quite a scene. Shanghai, however, was jam-packed, yet I finally got a temporary room in the nearby Palace Hotel, where we moved in with all of our luggage. I called my firm from the hotel. The Iron Gustave told me that the Schmeling was killed in Poland. I was stunned. Mother was crying and railing against the Nazis. You, Krenka, delivered another load in your pants, and in the stinking room, all our luggage was piled high. Krenka, of course, was the name he gave my grandmother's sister. The nature of Melkura's job had also changed during the war, even now that he was in Shanghai. He described how, once the war in Russia was underway, all connections, except radio communications, were severed with Germany. When Japan entered the war, Shanghai was completely cut off from the rest of the world, and there were no imports nor exports. Nevertheless, the firm got through the war years better than expected. The machines and optics stored in our warehouse were sold off one by one most advantageously. For example, before the war, we may have earned 5-10% to 10% on the sale of an average-sized diesel engine. Now that such engines were no longer available, we could demand any price and earned a few hundred percent, with which we could cover our own expenses for a good long time. In addition to the sales from our warehouse, we had more or less success with other ventures, taking advantage of local manufacturers and local trade. At this point, however, Melkor had considerably more freedom to travel as he wished. As a German citizen, the Japanese granted him special permissions as an ally of their cause. They, of course, had, must not have known that he didn't like the Nazi regime, or at least must not have cared. He was granted permission to travel back to Nanking, where his house still was, before all of this craziness took place, and where he had some business to settle. At this point, Nanking was under full control of the Japanese. To preserve a facade of Chinese leadership and slightly pacify the Chinese civilians, they put in place what Melchior referred to as the puppet president, Wang Qingwei. Melchior described how this is where the Chinese puppet president, Wang Qingwei, resided. Of course, he had no power. In much of China, the Japanese military reigned. Melchior's description is pretty accurate. Wang was widely regarded as a national traitor. Initially a spokesman for Sun Yat-sen, he had shortly become a national hero when he risked his life to assassinate a Manchu prince in 1910. However, struggling with Chiang Kai-shek for power after Sun Yat-sen's death, a power fight that he ultimately lost, he lost almost everything and attempted suicide. He ended up moving to Japanese-occupied territory and ended his career as head of a puppet regime established at Nanking in 1940 believing that he could best serve China's national interests through collaboration rather than resistance. Although his attempts to defend China from within were sincere, he found himself most closely associated in the public mind with the policy of yielding to Japan, and was hated by all patriotic groups who advocated positive resistance. He ended up completely deserting China's central government and forming a separate regime under Japanese sponsorship, where he pretty much did the bidding of the Japanese government, hence the nickname Puppet President. In Nanking, Melchior attempted to salvage what wealth he could for him and his business associate, and even had an interesting run-in where he attempted to wrangle ownership of a hotel, which had been stolen from an associate with, of his, out of the hands of the Japanese and the nationalist Chinese hotel guests. It ended up being pretty successful. Melchior was a remarkably good businessman. His associate, in gratitude, permitted Melchior to store his money in a Swiss bank under his Chinese name, as a German man, opening an account would have caused trouble. Melchior remarked how, 
Long before the end of the war, when I was certain that Germany, in spite of all its trumpeting and drum rolls, would lose, I moved the majority of my savings to an account in a Swiss bank under the name of my Chinese Commodore. None of this transaction was recorded, and he could have cleaned me out. But I had his word, and that was enough. And I didn't lose a dime. Pressured by the Western alliance after the war, Switzerland froze some or all of the accounts of their German clients. Thanks to my Chinese brother, I was not affected. He accessed his money without any difficulty and transferred the entire amount into the a bank account which your American mother had created in the U.S. This is pretty interesting, and upon reading this segment of Melchior's story, one of my classmates remarked that Germans storing their money in Swiss banks during World War II was a pretty common historical trope. I had no idea this was a thing, and so I did some further research. It turned out that Nazis used similar tactics to Melchior, Swiss banks were a stable repository when the country was grinding to a halt, and Nazis knew that their riches would soon be confiscated. However, this was much more sinister than Melchior's money, as hard as that is to believe since Melchior's money, after all, was spent giving weapons to violent warlords. The Nazi money in Swiss bank was typically the result of sales of confiscated Jewish valuables. Paintings, money, even the very gold fillings from Jewish people's teeth were confiscated prior to their murder or internments, and then sent into Nazi bank accounts for safe storage. The problem with this, however, is that the Swiss banks kept this pretty hush-hush. It was only until 30 to 40 years after the war that Jewish activists began to dig up the roots of this theft and trace them back to Swiss banks. After all, when Jewish survivors had come to collect their stolen valuables, it had seemed as if they had disappeared off the face of the earth, never to be seen again. According to one article published in 1996 by PBS, Switzerland's reputation as a neutral safe haven during World War II has been badly tarnished by recent revelations about its wartime transactions with Germany. What began as an extermination of the dormant bank accounts of Holocaust victims has gained momentum to include the whole gamut of Swiss financial dealings with the Nazis. In recent months, a vast amount of incriminating documentation has been unearthed that reveals the sinister side of Swiss neutrality. Switzerland served as a repository for Jewish capital smuggled out of Nazi Germany and the states threatened by it, and also for vast quantities of gold and other valuables plundered from Jews and others all over Europe. Right up until the end of the war, Switzerland laundered hundreds of millions of dollars in stolen assets, including gold taken from the central banks of German-occupied Europe. At the war's end, Switzerland successfully resisted Allies' calls to restitute these funds, and in the Washington Agreement of 1946, the Allies contended themselves with acceptance of a mere 12% of the stolen gold. Holocaust survivors and their heirs of those who perished met an implacable wall of bureaucracy, and only a handful managed to reclaim their assets. As it turns out, some of the dormant accounts were taken by the Swiss authorities to satisfy claims of Swiss nationals, whose property was seized by communist regimes in East-Central Europe. It's pretty terrifying to contemplate that my great-grandfather's savings had been mixed with, collected alongside, and then safely stored next to money from the gold teeth of Holocaust victims. It's also horrifying that my great-grandfather had the foresight to both store his money in a Swiss bank and use the medium of gold bars. But let's move on in the story. Melchior was actually doing relatively well in Shanghai, although it is troubling that he looked upon this with such cool. Not until spring of 1942 were they all rounded up and distributed to several different primitive internment camps throughout the city. 
Doe and her family were taken. Germans, as allies of the Japanese, were protected and left alone to carry on as before. Because all English, Americans, and others were interned, their apartments were freed up. We took advantage of this situation by renting a rather large apartment in the French concession. In less than a few years, we now furnished an apartment for a third time. We were preparing for the birth of our second child. In this apartment was where my beloved grandmother, Nainai, as I like to call her, was born. The one who translated his letter, and probably the only person who will be listening to this dry historical podcast in its entirety. Their family was also enjoying ski vacations in Japan, excursions around the Chinese countryside, and pretty much ignoring the roar that was going on around them. It's crazy to me that my family was taking ski vacations and buying dream apartments while other people were dying on a war front. But it didn't seem to trouble Melchior all that much. At this point, Melchior had worked himself up to almost at the top of his company. The directors of Melchior & Co., as he recalled, tried to persuade him to take on an even larger role in northern China. The firm's directors tried, again, to persuade me to take on duties from the north. For this purpose, they called the Iron Gustav to Tianjin. He tried to talk me into becoming manager for the entirety of the Manchuria region, overseeing offices in Harbin, Changchun, Mukden, and Daren, uh, with an office for me in Mukden. I rejected this for the same reasons, and the firm finally gave up. My decision to avoid any transfers to the north turned out to be most fortunate. After the collapse of the Axis powers in 1945, Manchuria was conquered by Russia. Indeed, even in Shanghai, living conditions between the two world wars was not rosy. However, we personally did not suffer at all, and from our base in Shanghai, I could make advantageous preparation for the disaster which was to come. At this point, although Melchior had anticipated that the Germans would lose for quite some time, it became pretty clear to the rest of the world that they were headed towards a defeat. Melchior, as savvy with his savings as ever, recognized this and tried to preserve what money he had after being forced to relocate. He recalled how the situation was rather senseless. As a German, one did not relish landing on the losing side and most likely suffering very unpleasant personal consequences. On the other hand, imagining a victory under the rule of the oppressive Nazis, one welcomed their defeat and the end of the party. Not knowing what lay ahead of our own future, I had to come up with some kind of strategy. First, I felt certain that our firm would be shut down by the victors. I withdrew all my savings out of accounts in the firm for going favorable interest rates. Just like after Germany lost the First World War, most likely its citizens would be forced to repatriate. I thought that in Germany itself, a revolution would break out after the defeat, as it happened with the First World War. Not against the monarchy this time, but against the Nazis. Not only would the country suffer hardship and famine, but inflation would debase the currency. Thus, our efforts had to be directed to avoiding Germany, and under no circumstance planning, placing any of our savings in its banks. The latter is just what a whole group of Germans did at the time, receiving promises that they would reap highly favorable returns. It was a very attractive offer, as I remember, made by the German Asiatic Bank. I, however, bought Swiss francs and deposited them, as described before, in that particular Swiss account. I also bought Swedish kroners, setting up an account under mother's name and depositing them in a bank in Stockholm. That way, a good two-thirds of our savings were tucked away abroad. With the rest, I bought gold bars and American banknotes and placed them in a Shanghai bank deposit box so that they would be readily accessible. 
All these precautions were taken about two years before the end of the war. While the Nazis in Shanghai were cheering with great jubilation any military win, still certain of a complete victory. True, my money accrued no interest, and yet, when finally the war ended, I did not need to scurry around in panic to salvage savings, like so many, many Germans who lost a great deal of money. Apart from the fact that, as I had suspected, distributions they were promised could not be realized. It is troubling to think of how we bought gold bars from a Swiss bank, as there is now almost verifiable proof that the gold teeth and gold valuables from Jewish citizens of Germany were being melted down into gold bars for redistribution to other customers and to the benefit of the Nazis. The redistribution and circulation of these gold bars was in part what made Jewish valuables so hard to track down. They had been laundered through the system and into the hands of financially savvy patrons such as Melchior. It's pretty much impossible that Melchior would have known this then, or even have known this at the time of his death. But it's still a gruesome thing to contemplate. My great-grandfather, Melchior, carrying around the teeth of innocent Jewish civilians. What he was doing was actually completely illegal. Not, of course, that he cared. He mentioned that, above all, in 1945, it was very difficult and against the law to take money out of China. Chinese currency had collapsed. Under the leadership of Chiang Kai-shek's oldest son, Chiang Qinggao, the national Chinese had not only forbade money transfers abroad, but also strictly prohibited, under penalty of law possessions of all foreign currencies, and gold bars. I never gave these regulations a thought. I was not going to hand over my gold bars and American banknotes in exchange for a declining Chinese currency. The years after the war got more stressful as time went on. I feared that the Chinese government would force banks to open all their deposit boxes— this was a risk I did not want to take, and so I removed the gold bars and banknotes from the bank and hid them in our apartment. But later, this was also a risk, since I was at work all day, and Mother had already moved to America. But all turned out fine. No one stole our money, and we bo boarded the ship to come to America. I had managed, through various maneuvers, to stealthily transfer the majority of our savings to Mother's account in America. The rest I smuggled on board with me. As you know, we were not wealthy so the amounts were not huge. And yet, all of these savings allowed us to pay cash for our home in Bethesda and provided us with a good in cushion for retirement, financial independence as we aged, and a bit for your inheritance. There was good reasoning for China to make the withdrawal of Chinese money illegal for its residents. Between 1937 and 1949, three governments, the Nationalists, the Japanese, and the Communists, occupied China. Each of them was issuing its own money, the national government issued Chinese nationalist currency until its monetary reforms in 1948 through 49, when the CNC was replaced by the first gold yuan. The Japanese at first used both banknotes from Korea and Japan, and between 1930 and 1948, the communists issued approximately 30 local currencies and 10 different paper currencies, which circulated in the border regions. To add to the confusion, the three governments in China engaged in monetary warfare. As early as March 1938, the Japanese declared it illegal for anyone to carry or use nationalist currency. Similar policies were adopted by the communists in the north and the national government in the south. There was also substantial propaganda stating that the currency of their enemies was falling rapidly in value. The rapid and continuous inflation also resulted from extreme budgetary difficulties and the inability to sell bonds. Both a deteriorating military situation and an anticipated monetary reform caused runaway inflation in 1948. 
The communists claim that in nationalist China, prices in August 1948 were over 63 times the monthly average. In the fall of 1948, the nationalists exchanged the CNC for the gold yuan at 3 million to 1. However, this reform failed to stabilize prices, mainly because the nationalists did not start printing money. The economic situation was a disaster, and anyone who was smart was probably trying to put their money in other places, which couldn't have been helpful for the already crumbling economy. Luckily enough for Melchior, however, he got away with it. In my personal opinion, Melchior's most fascinating stories are of watching Germany slowly fall into its demise, mostly because it's interesting to watch him rejoice and simultaneously panic. He was excited over Hitler's downfall, but a ruined Germany meant, for him, certain unemployment and the terrifying prospect of the Treaty of Versailles happening all over again. Repatriations, if they were going to be implemented in a similar fashion, would mean forced repatriation into a country struggling with hunger, poverty, and inner turmoil, all with a family of two children. He, unlike in his childhood, was now wise enough to understand that Germany was on the losing side, despite the continuous propaganda streaming in from Japanese-occupied China and his home country of Germany. He recalled how war efforts were looking grim for Germany day after day. Totally incomprehensible was the baseless, unjustified optimism expressed by Nazi party members. Anyone else could clearly see that the end was in sight after Stalingrad was not conquered and the African front collapsed. The failed assassination attempt on Hitler was reported. Hitler survived and the conspirators lost their lives. Nazis cheered, yet their battle lines were in retreat. The Nazis insisted that these withdrawals would strengthen their overall positions. They retreated further. The Nazis proclaimed that a wonder weapon would bring Germany its ultimate victory. They fell back even further. Roosevelt's death was reported. Again, the Nazis cheered, but by then they were fighting on Germany's soil. In Shanghai, Hitler's suicide was heralded as a hero's death in the fight for Germany. I was in the auditorium of the German school where they had a funeral service for Hitler. There, for the last time, the SA, among the Pinkernel, strutted in uniform with zagged movements, stomping boots, and loud commands. After 12 years, the 1,000-year Reich met its end. No longer could they take my passport because I refused to raise my arms and greet their swastika and flag. Only one old woman, seated next to me, caught her breath. She berated me and informed me that Shirley, outside the SA, would recognize that I had dishonored them. I no longer needed to fear denunciation. I could laugh at her, look straight into her face, and say, You poor old woman, which is what I did. I'm more than willing to admit that this story gives me a little bit of joy. While there are many moments in a story where I was disgusted by my great-grandfather's actions, I was always very proud of his refusal to accept Nazi propaganda. So while he had some idea that the war was ending, he had no definitive proof due to the tireless efforts of Japanese censorship. At first, we had no direct means of communication with Germany, which had surrendered unconditionally and no longer had a government in power. Japanese press reports gave us incomplete and unreliable accounts of conditions in defeated Germany. In these months before Japan's collapse, we were left in the dark, waiting and subject to all kind of wild rumors. We knew, of course, that Japan could not continue on its own. But when would it give up its arms, and what would become of us? Given the huge distance between the theaters of war and the Japanese motherland, the war could drag on for quite a long time. Even when the Russians declared war on Japan, we in Shanghai did not feel close to actual combat. Only after Japanese censors reported the detonation of an atomic bomb were we sure that the war was ending.
A few days after the Japanese surrender, the first American plane met no re- resistance and arrived in Shanghai from Chongqing. With so many hundred square miles of country, however, the reality of the Allied occupation was only rumored in Shanghai as American Marines docked their ships. American and nationalist Chinese troops arrived by land quite a long time later. As Americans began to arrive, they obviously weren't very friendly to German populations in Japan, and more and more Americans began arriving, causing housing shortages. Many Germans, who didn't have anyone to vouch for them, were kicked out of their homes. However, they had their usual luck. Because Mushka did have an American birth certificate, he remarked that, of course, all this was a big scam. We were under the administration of the Chinese government, and no American Marine had the right to throw out all of our apartments and confiscate our possessions. While theoretically this was correct, in practice it's not easy for the vanquished to challenge the victors. Personally, we were lucky. Mother whipped out her American birth certificate and pretended to be an American citizen. We did not know at the time that she actually was one. We thought we'd outfox them, for our bluff succeeded. The Marine, however, could not suppress his disgust that my mother, as an American, had married a German Nazi pig. And I had to stand there, listen to his tirades, and restrain myself. Melchior ended up working for the UNRRA, or United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Administration. The UNNRA was called a United Nations agency, but was established prior to the United Nations. This was because, at the time, the term United Nations was being used to refer to the allies of World War II, a term used by Roosevelt. It was an international relief agency, but was essentially controlled by the United States, like most things were during that era of history. Although initially it only provided aid for the Allied powers, it extended help to surviving German Jews. In 1944, alongside all other persons who had been obliged to leave their country or place of origin or former residence or who have been deported therefrom by action of the enemy because of race, religion, or activities in favor of the United Nations. The United Nations once again meant the Allied powers, not the organization as we know it today. According to its charter, signed at Washington in November 9, 1943, the purpose of this organization was to plan, coordinate, administer, or arrange for the administration of measures for the relief of victims of war in any area under the control of any of the United Nations, through the provision of food, fuel, clothing, shelter, and other basic necessities, medical and other essential services, and to facilitate in certain areas so far as necessary to the adequate provision of relief. Woo, long sentence. In a typical fashion, Melchior and Mushka accidentally made friends with one of the most famous Americas in their area of China, while Melchior was working for this administration. This was General Wiedemeyer. Melchior described how, coincidentally, Mother got to know General Wiedemeyer, who came to replace General Stilwell as commander of all American troops in the Chinese theater of war. The book he later published, Wiedemeyer's Reports, was much disputed, but we who lived in China found it well worth reading. At the time, we had no idea that we were socializing with a famous, controversial general. Mother invited him to tea, and he came to us carrying a huge watermelon as his gift for the hostess. Among other things, he told us that for two years he was an exchange officer with the German War Academy, where he got to know Hitler's general Jodl. Jodl's wife had just written, appealing to him to help her husband on trial in Nuremberg as a major war criminal. Wiedemeyer did not help, nor was he inclined to do so. At any rate, General Jodl was found guilty and hanged. Wiedemeyer, however, did help us, personally, and for that, to this day, I am grateful to him. 
Although the war had ended some time ago, we still had no postal communication with Germany. We had no idea if, if our families were alive, and they, as well, knew nothing about us. Wiedemeyer was willing to transmit a few of our letters to immediate family in Germany. He succeeded, and we have Wiedemeyer to thank that my father, the Wormers, and the Fezzers heard about our well-being long before the postal service resumed. This was particularly meaningful for my father, who died shortly after our first package of provisions arrived. To get a sense of just how important this Wiedemeyer is, here is a segment from a dissertation on the general. General Albert C. Wiedemeyer wrote the most important military document of World War II. The Victory Program, sometimes called the Victory Plan, in the spring of 1941, shortly before America entered the war. The Victory Program recommended the buildup of American armed forces, increased civilian protection to wartime levels, and a strategic plan to organize forces in England for preparation for a cross-channel invasion into France in the spring of 1943. Wiedemeyer's recommendation for a cross-channel invasion was resisted by Churchill, who never favored an invasion into France at any time. To silence him, he was eased out to Asia with approval of President Roosevelt. General Wiedemeyer replaced General Stilwell as the commander of American forces in China in October 1944 and was responsible for the improvement of Chinese troops. He was one of few Americans to understand the menace of communism and strongly urged full United States support of Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist forces against the Chinese communists under Mao Zedong. After the war, Wiedemeyer returned to China in 1947 for the purposes of making recommendations with regard to the ongoing civil war and revolution between the nationalists and the communists. His report and recommendations were suppressed by President Truman until after the communists had come to power in 1943. The other man Melker mentions, Jodl, was indicted on charges to commit crimes against peace for planning and initiating wars of aggression, and he was also charged for war crimes and crimes against humanity at the Nuremberg trials and found guilty on all charges. He was sentenced to death and executed in Nuremberg in 1946. He had been a general, serving as chief operations staff or the German Armed Forces High Command. Obviously, there is no way that General Wiedemeyer could get him off the hook on that one. At this point in time, quite predictably, the Americans were performing a massive undertaking to force German citizens to repatriate out of China and get back to Germany. Needless to say, the Germans, who had intentionally stayed out of Germany for the entire war, had no desire to go now that their country was in ruins. Most people still had memories from the last of the First World War, which was etched into the back of their brains. Melchior recalled how, if one had known how quickly conditions in Germany would improve, then repatriation might have been welcomed as free transport home. A large family had to pay a good sum for passage to Germany. In addition, at the time of mandatory repatriation, Germans had no means of an income. All German businesses had been forced to close. Since the state of war between Germany and China still existed, no German staying on in China could dare open up a new business, and not many had any luck in finding a job. Most of them lived off their savings, and no one wanted to return to Germany. The fear of being forced to return to your destroyed homeland could run so deep that the royal salesman attempted suicide a couple days before his ship's departure. He was in luck. His ship sailed off without him, and he survived. While Melchior was not forcibly repatriated, he was noticing that the current situation in China would probably not get any better. He mentioned that, I also knew that my current job in Chinese business had no staying power for me, in addition to the fact that it no longer interested me. 
to merely consult with limited chances to actually conduct business transaction must be an acquired taste. We also did not want to return to Germany. Not only did I think that it would take Germany a long time to recover, but as I was also so disappointed and bitter that I had no desire to continue to be a German. This country of mine had landed us into two world wars and had brought the Nazi party to power. Sure, Germany would be on its knees for the rest of my lifetime, I told myself. But it wouldn't be impossible if our children had to end up in a similar mess in the future. We're still young and knew nothing about Germany except its language. It would be easy for them to take root in another country and consider it home. I thought of America or Australia. The latter, perhaps because of recent military entanglements, stayed in the background. But America, for several reasons, seemed a more suitable country. I was convinced that little could go wrong if we immigrated to America and became American citizens. Your mother agreed. It was not an easy decision for me, and I made it mainly because of you, our children. The issue of actually getting to America was an entirely different and much more difficult one. The American bureaucracy was overloaded with applications for migration to America, and hesitant to accept the applications they did have out of anti-German sentiment. For all, they were pretty terrified of letting Nazis into the country. On the other hand, Melkor soon learned that they had the upper hand, as Mushka, as it turned out, was born in America and therefore was an American citizen. In fact, so was their eldest daughter. As prior to 1940, German children born to an American parent were American citizens. My grandmother, on the other hand, was not an American citizen, having been born after 1940. With half of their applicants being American, however, they did have a considerable leg up on the rest of the German applicants. My great-grandmother and her daughter fled to America, while my father's application was automatically rejected for having worked for a prominent German form, something which he found outrageous. I'm less surprised about this than he, for after all, he was heavily involved in German arms manufacturing and distribution, and subverting the restrictions placed upon Germany by the Treaty of Versailles, something which probably didn't look too good to the American government. In America, however, my great-grandmother hired an immigration lawyer and tirelessly labored to bring Melchior and my grandmother back into the United States. It's quite lucky that she had that insight. While I won't go into the complications of Chinese politics more than I already have, the communist regime was advancing and slowly taking China. According to my grandmother, a story which she has told me often, they booked the last boat out of Shanghai. This, of course, might not be true, but I find it romantic to take her word on it. So, as Melchior iterated in his letter, the situation got most unpleasant after the failed so-called Marshall mission. You may know the general, later Secretary of State Marshall, was sent to China to mediate between Chiang Kai-shek and the Chinese communists. Chiang was very stubborn and clever, but he did not feel the need to back down. Having completely failed, Marshall had to return to America. The Chinese Civil War was started up in earnest. It started in the north in Manchuria. Two missteps and failures followed, one after another. America, as so often was the case in the Far East, was backing the wrong horse. The communists chalked up one victory after another. They didn't even need to actually fight it out. Chiang Kai-shek's soldiers were exhausted, spent, without motivation or ideals, and because of mounting inflation, totally broke. When, finally, in 1949, we received our immigration visas for America, communist troops were advancing, unhindered southward. A mix of panic and apathy reigned in Shanghai. Most of the wealthy Chinese, as well as my boss, Yang Kang, fled to Hong Kong. Finally, the family was reunited in America, where they started their new life, and there Melchior ended his story. 
I actually knew relatively little about my great-grandfather's life before I read this account. But then again, I also knew nothing of Chinese warlords, the interwar conflict in Germany, the Kaiser, German nationalism, and I consider myself fairly well-read in history. Blame it on an Americanized education, I guess. But this story still has its grips on my family. While my grandfather died relatively young, the money he smuggled out of China in gold bars went to my grandmother, Mushka, who lived nicely into her old age before developing Alzheimer's. I did meet Mushka a few times as a very young child, but at that point she only spoke German, having forgotten all of her English. Most of his money went to my father's college savings and into buying him a new violin. I have a very musical family, something which I thank Mushka for. I chose this project because I have always wanted to know more about my family, but specifically more about the German side of my family. Being German, especially belonging to a family which resided in Germany during the Holocaust, comes with several layers of guilt. This guilt kept my family in silence about their history, particularly the stories of my great-grandparents, since I was a child. I had always known that my great-granduncle was a Nazi, and that the great-grandmother that I affectionately called Mushka had written letters supporting the Nazis, something which I only heard in hushed tones about throughout my youth. And so, naturally, I expected my great-grandfather to hold similar views. Needless to say, I was surprised when I skimmed his story for the first time. My great-grandfather, as he mentions in the first paragraph of his letter, was a quiet man who said little about his past. Although he died young, before my father was born, he was apparently soft-spoken compared to the firecracker Mushka. Until he wrote down his story at the request of my grandmother, my family hadn't known his life in its entirety. However, his detest for the Nazi party hardly acquits my family of its crimes. The guilt of Nazism rings deep within my family, especially in my grandmother. Upon contemplating the English translation of my great-grandfather's words, My grandmother triumphantly sent it to every member of my family and stored it as a prized possession in her library safe. As for the Nazi-supporting letters of my great-grandmother, they were lost during a move. The truest marker of a German family is the often falsified or exaggerated lore of a bold family member who defied the Nazis, coupled with amnesia about the family's Nazi roots. But while my grandmother proudly envisioned Melchior as a vagabond who pulled himself up by the bootstraps and defiantly protested Nazism, I couldn't share a similar enthusiasm for his story. Melchior made his riches as a cog in the military-industrial complex. His weapons were used by despotical warlords, and he did relatively nothing to stop a regime he knew was wrong. He was little more than an opportunistic bystander to Nazism. I see slices of my grandfather's life in myself and my life story. Gold bars melted from the teeth of Holocaust victims helped my father attend a pretentious Ivy League institution and ricocheted our family into a comfy suburban success story. Although the riches gathered from Melchior's weaponry assistance to ruthless dictators were substantially diminished by the war, the leftover funds planted my nai or grandmother, into a segregated neighborhood in Bethesda, Maryland. My grandfather's story is one of personal hardship, to be sure, but it's also one of dangerous apathy, an apathy which, as a direct product of his ruthless materialism, I have benefited from. Therein lies the importance of my historical work. Stories, particularly family stories, are passed down like a childhood game of telephone. I grew up with two easily digestible, contrasting narratives— 
The first being, your whole family was made up of evil Nazis. And the second, that your great-grandfather was a proud anti-Nazi. But somewhere within that gray area of these two black and white stories lies the truth. A truth which is necessary, not just for history's sake, but also for accountability's sake. I sit here with my historical databases, which I access from a sleek laptop, in a prestigious college where I can partake in such silly endeavors, all because Melchior ran guns. And so, while Melchior's story reads like a Hollywood James Bond movie, his character, in my eyes, is much more Shakespearean. Had I ignored this complexity, simplified family legends would have continued to replace the nuanced truth. And like many events in history, a multifaceted narrative would have been squelched by an oversimplified story of good versus evil. Thank you.